Hello, I'm Phil Gibson, and welcome to Biota. Thanks for joining me, and I hope everyone is doing all right and staying safe out there. So in this episode, I'm going to continue exploring some topics that I talked about previously in the episodes about Nikolai Vavilov. One of the topics is that people depend on plants. Although most of what I talked about previously was referring to food crops, realize that we depend on plants for different natural resources that we just can't get anywhere else. We obtain a range of different chemicals from plants, and many of them are medicines. Some of our oldest written documents are actually descriptions of how to identify plants and process them for different medicinal purposes. A second topic we talked about is that growing any plant requires some specialized knowledge. There are some similar things about growing any plant. You need water, light, healthy soil and nutrients, that kind of thing. But each plant species has its own unique requirements that a farmer needs to know about to grow a plant from seedling to harvested crop. Some plants are tolerant of almost any kind of treatment, but others are very specific in what they want and require to survive. Now, knowing those peculiarities about your plants are very important, especially if you're trying to conduct the alchemy that converts soil, air, and water into medicinal phytochemicals. This biota episode addresses that topic specifically. On June 26, 2018, Oklahoma voters approved State Question 788 legalizing the use of medicinal cannabis, making it the 30th state to do so. With this legislation, a new species was now a member of the legal agricultural ecosystem in Oklahoma. And with that, opportunities for people interested in growing this crop were suddenly present. One question I had as a botanist and someone who's been growing plants for pretty much my whole life is how do they do this? How is cannabis grown on a large industrial scale? It's not quite like growing sunflowers or corn and wheat. I mean, I don't expect that I'll be driving past fields of cannabis growing next to the highway anytime soon, although there are some outdoor cannabis growers here in Oklahoma. But what I'm wondering is how is it done on a large scale in operations that are pretty much indoors and not just in your typical greenhouse? To answer that, I was fortunate enough to meet a grower, visit their operation, and arrange for an interview. And that's what I have for you here today. So once again, as we continue this little summertime botanical odyssey, get comfortable, kick back, and enjoy this interview with one of the owners from Smoky Oakey's Cannabis. I'm happy to have a guest with us today from one of our local botanical industries. Join me in welcoming Ellie McDaniel from Smoky Oakey's. Hello, Ellie, and welcome to Biota. Hello, thank you for having me. So let's let's start with a really just general first question. What is Smoky Oakies and what is your job there? We are a cannabis grow located in OKC Metro. Um, we're about 15,000 square feet and we grow cannabis legally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the important part. <laughs> I guess I should say that. Yeah. And what is it that you do there? What's your role? I am, I'm actually in sales now, but I'm one of the owners and I actually started this operation. Um, I started as the only employee and then we, I had to figure everything out, how to set it up, how to actually grow these plants. And then we kind of evolved to three employees and then six employees. And now we have 20. And what was it that got you interested in doing this? I mean, how do you, how do you decide that, okay, I'm going to start growing cannabis? Yeah. Uh, definitely wasn't on my mind, um, ever until it 788 started to pass and it was on the news. And, um, 
I don't know why I just wasn't general, like just excited about that passing and being able to have access to cannabis legally. Instead, I immediately just got excited about being in the industry, which is very odd because it's not like I had a lot of money myself to dream that kind of big. But for some reason, I don't know if you call it destiny or what, but I just felt very pushed in that direction to want to do it. And I really wasn't sure if they were going to cap licenses or not. So a lot of the research I did at first, when I started looking at other states, I was kind of thinking, man, I'm never going to get an opportunity at doing this because most of these other states have capped licenses and only like the rich of the rich get licenses in these other states. So I just kept trucking along with a plan and what all I needed to do to make that happen. And then I found out that they weren't going to cap licenses and that everybody basically that was 25 or older, you had to have 75% Oklahoma ownership. And there's a few other uh, pieces of criteria that you have to have to be able to, to apply. And um, after I found that out, it was just like, man, this was meant to be, I have to try to do this because I'm in one of the, the only states in the United States that isn't capping licenses. So I felt like if I didn't try it, that I was just going to let a huge opportunity slip through my fingers. And I'm glad I did. So do you and your partners come from some type of botany or agriculture background that led you to this? None at all. None at all. My partner, he's an attorney. I'm a paralegal. Uh, I had a laundromat business that I owned right before this. So no, not at all. Uh, it's crazy that we decided to get into this. And I will say that it's been really, really hard for us. And we're not the only ones in the industry that don't have a background. But I can only imagine how much easier this all would have been if I would have had experience in botany or agriculture or anything. And I didn't. And there could have been a lot of headaches that I could have avoided if I would have had a background in that. So I encourage people that have that type background to look into it because there's a huge opportunity here for you to change your life. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about just the, the whole process. Can you explain to the listeners in a, in a general way, just sort of what happens as you take a cutting from a mother plant to get a clone going and then taking that to a harvested product. So what are all the steps along the way? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we here, we start from seed actually, and it takes about, I mean, you got to germinate that seed first. So that's about a three-week process. But usually they're about five to six weeks old before you can actually start taking clones off of them. And then you take your clones. And then that's another five to six-week process in veg, the vegetative state. Um, and then you flip that into flower, which changes its life cycle to 12 on, 12 off. And then that's called the flowering period. And depending on which type plant you have, which strain, some of them are eight weeks flower, some of them are 10 weeks flower. You can go all the way up to 12 weeks flower. We try to stick to eight to nine weeks flower in our facility. So then you're finishing out in flower and then they get cut down and then they're hung for 10 to 12 days in a dry room with controlled temp and humidity in there. And then after that 10 to 12 days, they get taken down. We call it shucking where you take all the buds off of the stem and stalks and you dispose of the stems and stalks and then that pro now you're actually trimming all of that up with our trimming crew and you can use machines or you can hand trim we actually do a little bit of both top tier product is hand trimmed 
if we can, we try to get it through a machine at least once to get as many leads off there as possible because it kind of cuts down on that workload for our trimmers. And then at that point, it gets bagged up. It's all weighed. It's inputted into the system as sellable product at that point. Um, now, when you harvest, you also have batch numbers that go along with that, too. And then um, it cures for an additional two weeks. It cures in bags in a uh, humidity and temperature-controlled room. And then it's sold. So what happens in that curing process? The curing process, really, you're letting out a lot of the chlorophyll that's still in there. Like when you open a bag and you, if it smells like grass, there's still a lot of moisture in those buds. So the curing process, every day, we call it burping. You open those bags to release those gases out. You leave them open for about 10 minutes or so. You move around the product in there to make sure the air can hit all of the product. And um, that just allows for all that extra moisture that might still be in there that didn't get out and dry to come out. Because like I said, that's how you get that beautiful smell to your product instead of it being like a hay smell that you smell. Okay. Now that's, you know, you've talked about how you harvest the flowers. Is that the only part of the plant that you use or are there other parts that go to different processes? There's trim. So any of the leaves, and a lot of the trichomes fall off of the buds into the trim as well. So we sell a separate product that's, you know, called trim. Some people call it shake. And that can either be sold to dispensaries to sell on their shelves for a really discounted price. Or people will buy that and make edibles with it. It can also be used to make vape carts, tinctures. Um, the sky's the limit with the trim that they use. And then we also have another product, which is called small buds. So any of the teeny tiny buds that we have that we feel like are just too small to go in the regular pound bags, that's another tier that we have. So we have a separator that we separate out the small buds and the big buds. But basically, as a grower, that's all I handle here. I don't get into any processing. Okay. Now, if you could, what is sort of a typical day like for you? So you, you show up at Smoky Okies, and what are all the things you have to do as you, you go through a typical day? Are we talking about me on my cell side or if I was in the back running? It well, back I was, was going to ask sort of what, what your day is like, but then sort of a general, what's the day in the operation. So either one of okay. those that you want to talk about or, or one and then the other, but just sort of understanding or explaining to people what it is that you do during a typical day. And then what happens at, at Smokey Okies every day. Okay. When I first started, um, I would get up here at five in the morning um, and get going with the two helpers that I had. And, uh, you know, we would usually work just one room at a time because we didn't have enough people that were hired here to work in multiple rooms. Now we've evolved to 20 people to where there's people that work in the veg space. There's a team of three to four people that work in there. And then there's about seven to eight people that work in the flower rooms. And then we have eight to 10 people that work on the trim side. And then I have managers in place I have a harvest manager that's over on the trim side. I have an operations manager that's in the back. And then I also have a flower room manager. And then I also have a bedroom manager. So I have all these managers in place and stuff. So it's easy now. But at the very beginning, basically, I was running all of that um, hiring, firing, you know, trimming plants. I was physically doing that myself, cloning. Um, there's This is don't get into the industry unless if you're ready to do hard labor every single day. Every week we pot 
three, um, roughly about 320 to 340 pots that we make. Um, a machine doesn't make those, so you're bent over filling these pots. We use cocoa and perlite mixture here. Um, and then you're also harvesting that same amount of plants, so you're cutting down that many plants. And then after you harvest that area, you have to deep clean that space, which includes scrubbing the walls. Um, we used to carry out drip pans and scrub them, make sure they were sterilized before they went back into the room, deep clean the floors. Uh, everything is just sterilized after that harvest to make sure that it's clean and that you're not spreading any diseases from one crop to another. And um, then you're also hand trimming every bit of what has been harvested from the previous week. So every week you're potting, you're also making clones to replace what you've harvested. Uh, we also do what we call a flip. So after you harvest within that same week, we make sure that we flip another 340 to 360 plants back into the space immediately. So that way we don't have any delays in between harvests. So that's what you're cramming in a week. And uh, that's why it takes so many bodies to make sure that that can happen flawlessly all the time. When I first started out, we were not doing that many plants at a time. We were much, much smaller because we could only handle about 200 plants at a time. So we were definitely, that was pushing it to even do that many. And we weren't on a weekly cycle yet. So it took every bit of a year for us to get on a weekly cycle and everything to be smoothed out. But we also had building going on. So that slowed us down as well. We didn't have as many rooms built out yet. We only had one flower room and one veg. So it's taken a long time to evolve. Now that I have those managers in place, I'm on the sell side. So a typical day for me now, um, my day actually doesn't start till much later now because most of these dispensaries and processors don't really get going till about 9 a.m. So now I come in and I make my phone calls or else I have people reaching out to me for products. I get with them. I make deliveries to them, make sure that they're happy with the product. Uh, we also reach out to people via email with the new pricing sheet for each week for the menu. I make sure that testing is correct, that it's full panel for everything that we sell. Also, that invoices and transact, uh, transportation manifests are done for every single sell because that's the law. Uh, so that's basically what I do now. But before, it was definitely all operations. You mentioned two really interesting things uh, when you were describing the operation. One is you talked about something called cocoa. Now, what is that? You know, I don't, I could look it up. Cocoa is just a replacement for soil. The reason I didn't go with soil whenever I was planning our operation is because soil holds a lot of water. And with these plants, you need to be able to feed them nutrients every single day to get the amount of growth that you want out of them within a short amount of time. Because we're not outdoors where you have months and months of them growing outside and getting it from the soil. So I felt like, and everybody has a different way of growing. And there's no way I would ever claim that my way is the right way because there's no right way in this. So everybody can pick their own. But cocoa is a lot more porous. So the water can actually go through the cocoa easier to where you don't overwater your plants. Because with cannabis, it's very, very easy to overwater them. And so you want something that doesn't hold a lot of moisture that you can water them every single day. Now, depending on how big they are, you're going to water them less. They're at about, when they're babies and they're in the bedroom, they get watered every other day and they get about a half a gallon for a three-gallon pot. 
And then when we go into flour, they get watered at least half a gallon, if not more, every single day of the nutrients. And the nutrients are also different for veg than whenever they flip to flour. They get a lot more nitrogen in veg than they do in flour. And so this is a hydroponic type of system because it's soilless. Yes. Is that how they describe this? Okay, yes. cool, cool. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask about was you mentioned testing. So what, what happens in testing? What are you testing for? So once it gets hung into the dry room and we go to take it down after that 12 days, we send off, um, it's a seven to 10 grand sample for every single strain and for a group of 10 pounds. So if I have a strain that has 20 pounds, I would have to set, I would have to send two samples because the batches and the law are 10 pound batches. So we send a sample. We usually don't have more than 10 pounds per strain every harvest because we harvest every week. So we're different than other people. So we send a test for every single strain for the week. As soon as it comes out of the dry room, it usually takes seven to 10 days to get that testing back. They're testing for mold. They're testing for pesticides. They're testing for heavy metals. They're also looking just to see if there's any hair or anything else in the sample that they're getting. Um, they're testing for terpenes and they're testing for THC levels. And then when you get your test back, E. coli, um, I'm trying to think of what else is on there. I think that's the majority of the big ones. We do a, what's called a full panel whenever we send them. And that's testing for everything to make sure that this product is safe for you to consume. And by law, you cannot sell any product until testing is in. So even if testing took 21 days, you cannot sell that product until testing it is in. And I'm a huge advocate for testing. I do want to make sure that product is always safe before the consumer actually has it at the end. So we're patient about that. We've been doing testing since, because when this first happened, we didn't have testing in place. That was just one of the pitfalls to us doing this program really quickly but we chose on our own to pay for testing for full panel even before that was the law so we've always operated like that we've wanted to know that it's safe and you need to know what the terpenes are and what the thc are it gives you thc is because it gives you a good idea of how your crop is doing each time if it's stressing, if you've done something correctly, or maybe that's just not a great strain and you need to cut it and move on to something different. So I enjoy seeing the test results every week. Excellent. Excellent. Um, since you mentioned strains, I mean, how do you, how do you decide what kind of strains to grow? How many are you um, sort of actively growing now? Are you looking for new strains? How does all that work? I have 35 current strains and I still have tons and tons of strains just in my safe that we haven't introduced just yet. Um, we definitely are going for beauty. A lot of people like those strains that are have a lot of trichome production, um, high in terpenes. We always look for that. But also from the medicinal side, I really love strains that are higher in CBD and CBG it's just really nice to see some strains that come along that are testing higher than just THC. I love it when a strain can give me more than just THC. And so got a two, two more questions about just sort of your job and, and everything at the, at the operation. First of all, what would you say is the hardest part of your job? The hardest part of the job would be the labor that's behind it because it's, it's def I've done a lot. I've cleaned houses. I've owned a cleaning company. I was raised my entire life with 
being self-employed, working in soap businesses, cleaning businesses, all of those are manual labor. I had a laundromat, which was manual labor. So I'm used to manual labor. This is a different level of manual labor, um, mainly because you're stuck in awkward positions all day long. So when you're making pots, you're bent over. Even if you have a stool, you're still bent over for hours at a time. When you're trimming plants, you're up on a stool with your arms extended out trimming. So it's not that it's like hard lifting. And I don't mean that about it, but it's just you're in awkward positions all day long that always end up affecting something that makes you feel uncomfortable. So you're on your feet all day long. We do have stools, but for the most part, you're on your feet all day long or you're up on a ladder um, hauling out drip pans, you're lifting drip pans, which aren't super heavy, but still you're hauling. I think we have, golly, I think we have close to 200 drip pans per room. So when you're dip, deep cleaning a room and you're hauling those all out and cleaning them and then hauling them back in, it's just, it, it's labor. Now the trim side has it pretty easy, but then once again, now they have a job that's very mundane. Every day you're sitting in the same spot doing the same thing over and over. So that takes a different type person as well to be comfortable with doing the same thing every single day. So I think that all of them have challenges out in the sell side. Um, There's so many people that are in the market that it's a very competitive market and people are tired of getting 50 million phone calls a day to sell them products. So you definitely hit brick walls a lot with sales. It's not just easy peasy to sell out there. Um, but when you do make sales, and you do end up making a company that's successful. It's just, you know that you're doing really, really well if you're standing out amongst 7,000 other growers. So it's also something to be very, very proud of about whenever you reach that level. So in your, since you've been in this, this industry, what's been the most interesting thing that you've learned? I mean, since you started out and you, and you said, you know, you didn't really come to this from a, a botany or agriculture background, what was the thing that you learned in this process that has just always stuck with you as, wow, that is just so cool. And there's been a lot of stuff that I've learned because I didn't have that background. So I would say that there's a lot of stuff, um, learning how temperamental these plants are and how easy they are to Hermie. If you trim them too soon after flipping, or if you trim them too late into flower, they can Hermie. So Hermieing is when you've stressed a plant. And now they've produced, even though it's a female plant, now she's produced seeds because she's been stressed out. Let's take a short break from the interview to explain something she just said, because it's a botanically interesting and economically important feature of this species. The cannabis sativa reproductive system is what botanists call dioecious, meaning that some plants make male flowers that produce pollen, and other plants produce female flowers that contain eggs to produce seeds. The female flowers are also the ones that produce THC. When a female plant that has started flowering is stressed by heat, drought, trimming, and trimming is, is analogous to herbivory, that female plant will start producing male flowers. It's like she senses that she may not be able to produce seeds, so by shifting to pollen production, the plant can still experience some kind of reproductive success. A plant that produces both female and male flowers is what plant reproductive biologists call hermaphroditic, or what is known as a hermy in the cannabis industry. Cannabis growers want their grow rooms to be free of pollen-producing flowers and plants because once a female flower is pollinated, the plant starts directing resources to seed production and not production of cannabinoids. So, 
Male plants and flowers in a grow room are a waste of resources that reduce the quality of the crop being produced in many ways and ultimately cost the grower money. Okay, let's get back to the interview. So they can be stressed out by their light being incorrect, like it's too low or your light cycles off and they're not getting enough light. Or if it gets too hot in a room, say an HVAC unit goes down and it gets too hot in there. Um, or if you trim too soon after flipping them, or if you trim too late into flower, all those things, like seriously, anything can hurt me, these things. They're very, very temperamental, which blew my mind because I've always seen them grown outside, you know, on riverbanks or just anywhere, nobody paying attention to them, you know? So I really assumed that these were easy, but when you're trying to shoot for perfection, if you remember a lot of our cannabis that we had back in the day that was illegal, it was full of seeds. And it could have been from males, but it also could have been from all of them herming due to stress, you know, and we just weren't aware of that at that time. We were just purchasing a product and you didn't really care. You know, you just thought that all cannabis had seeds in it, you know. So really, these these things are very, very temperamental, which is once again why I feel like we need people in the industry that have some background on plants and really understand what's going on with them, because it would be a lot easier for them. Um, and it would be a lot easier for them to direct a whole operation on what the best way to do, instead of just thinking of this is how my walls need to be like, this is how the layout needs to be, they would actually be honing in on the plants and the plant health. Um, the other things that I've learned are uh, pesticides, like safe levels of pesticides to be able to use, which pesticides to use. There was a lot of information I had to find out from the Department of Ag and how to document when pesticides were used and just a lot of that stuff that I had never been in contact with pesticides before, but I wanted to make sure that I was doing it safely and doing it correctly. So there was a lot of learning that went behind that and um finding that happy medium of you are preventing bugs from happening, but you're not over spraying them to a dangerous level. So, which once again is why testing is fantastic because at least people are able to tell like, Hey, I've sprayed too much pesticide on this crop. I need to dial it back. You know, luckily we've always came from like using not enough pesticide and just slowly, you know, bouncing it up a little bit by little bit until we found our safe level. So we never went for like extreme pesticide usage. We went for let's be better safe than sorry type thing. Um, and learning about different bugs that I had no clue about. I didn't know about russet mites. I didn't know about spider mites. I didn't know about aphids. And now I've been in contact with all of those and learned how to kill them and how to get rid of them and what I can do to prevent them from happening in future crops. So that was definitely a huge learning curve for me. And I'm grateful that I did have to go through all those hardships because now I know what to look for um, in my crop to try to keep those at bay. Now, thinking about this as an industry, one question that, that someone wanted me to ask was, how does hemp fiber fit into all of this? Or is that a completely separate thing? It's completely separate. It's 100% completely separate. These plants are very similar. I will say that very, very similar ones producing. See, if you see a picture of a hemp plant, they look identical. So you, you can obviously tell that these plants are related, but one just got the THC and one got the CBD basically. And I believe hemp is very important, um, not only for the fibers, but also for the CBD that it's 
producing because CBD, they've already done studies. They know that CBD is effective whenever it's used medicinally. So, and we needed hemp to pass first because hemp was less scary and it allowed for legislatures and for everybody to get on board with hemp first because it didn't have the psychoactive properties. And then cannabis was able to come behind it. So I feel like it has its purpose for the industry in that sense that it basically has, I don't, whatever you want to call it, blaze the trail for cannabis to come behind it, you know? So I'm grateful for everybody that's been in the hemp industry that has fought for those laws to pass to allow kids and other people to use CBD because it just made it easier whenever THC came through. So what do you see as the, the future of this industry overall in, in the United States or even just for the economy here in Oklahoma? I mean, it's been huge on our economy here in Oklahoma already. I'm trying to remember what the amounts were the other day that I saw that we've already cleared. I mean, it's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars that we've already made for our state. And I know it's higher than that. Um, so I think that we're approaching a billion dollars on sales that we've done here in Oklahoma. And we've only been active for two and a half years. We're also not allotting for the amount of money that we've paid in taxes federally. Because even though this is federally illegal, I still have federal taxes at the end of the day <laughs> for my company, massive amounts of federal taxes. So, and they punish you for being a cannabis business. You know, they don't allow you to have as many write-offs as the regular person. So they're definitely taking advantage of the situation of you being in the cannabis space. But money changes a lot as long as it's done correctly. And I hope and pray that our state will do the right things with the money that they're making from this. Because Oklahoma, I feel like, has improved a lot. We are one of the states that... Uh, that didn't put caps in place on licenses. So we're like one of the only ones that the entire United States can look at and see that it doesn't benefit them to put caps into place. That a free market is customer and consumer at the end of the day because they get better prices and they get so many products to choose from because there's so much competition out there. We're all trying our best to make sure that we have really, really nice product that's hitting the market. Not everybody, but most of us really care about that image. You know, I could be putting out really terrible product, terrible product at the end of the day, and it really not matter because you've got one of the only six licenses in the state. So that's, that's the difference between Oklahoma and other states. And everybody that's here in Oklahoma needs to realize what kind of opportunity that we have. And we need to be grateful and thankful for the opportunity that we have. And we need to milk this for as long as we possibly can. And everybody needs to get involved in any way that they can just to be able to experience this because this is a once in a lifetime thing that happens. And I'm currently fighting in another state for a license that has caps. And um, it's so crazy to see their point of view in that other state than the kind of viewing that we have here in Oklahoma. So it's an honor to be here and to be one of the very first cannabis business. I'm not the first, I'm not claiming that, but I'm one of the first cannabis businesses that started here in Oklahoma. And I'm so proud to be part of that group. Excellent. Excellent. So my last question for you today is if you were going to give some advice to a, a young botanist or a biologist who's interested in, in pursuing a career in this industry, what would be the advice you would give them right now? Start applying. 
start applying because there's so many companies out there that are hiring. Look on Indeed. Indeed, there's a lot of companies that are hiring on there. Um, I, I would just do anything that I could to get into the industry because the the pool of people that we have now that we're hiring, we find a lot of great people, don't get me wrong, but they're not as qualified as that group of people is. And like I said, there's a place for everyone here. I didn't come from that background. So I don't believe you have to have that background to be in this industry, but I definitely believe that there's a place for them here. And I would love to see more of them coming over to help our industry because they're just going to make our industry better. I mean, they really are. They're going to make us look more legit and function better because of the knowledge that they have. Well, that's fabulous. Thank you very much. And, and thanks for your time and answering all these questions. I really appreciate it. And maybe some other time down the road, we can have you back on the, on the podcast and we can ask some more questions. So thank you very much yes, again. Sir. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. That brings us to the end of the interview. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, Plants provide people with important resources. Personally, I find it very interesting that this species, Cannabis sativa, provides us with two very different products. On one hand, you can get fiber from this plant. On the other, a medicinally useful phytochemical. And as we heard in the interview, this species has some very specific requirements that a grower needs to know about in order to go from seed to crop. I want to thank Ellie and all of the team at Smoky Oakies. They showed me around and were extremely generous with their time and giving me the opportunity to ask all kinds of questions about their plants. Before I completely wrap this up, I want to briefly explain that the cocoa Ellie was mentioning earlier is the fibrous material from the husk of coconuts that's used to make different kinds of things, but one use is to replace sphagnum peat moss, which is often mixed in with potting soils. Like many things, we cannot sustainably harvest peat moss, so cocoa is providing an alternative. All right, so once again from everyone here at Biota, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you. Oh, and one more thing, stay kind.